Welcome to AM Best Audio. With opportunity comes risk, or as the saying goes, nothing ventured, nothing gained, as executives are working hard to move beyond the economic challenges of recent years. I'm Tom Davis, Managing Editor of Best Review, and welcome to our AM Best TV special presentation, Prospecting for the Next Great Risk Opportunity. Insurers in particular are prospecting for the next great risk opportunity as they've been dealing with the continuing challenges of COVID-19 and the growing threat of cyber attacks. The industry says they're identifying new risks by assessing carrier and capital partners who have demonstrated a demand for new coverages. Joining us are Hank Watkins, Regional Director and President for Lloyd's America. Welcome, Hank. Thank you, Tom. Next, we have Matthew Power. President for 180 Intermediaries. Welcome, Matt. Tom, it's good to be here. Also joining us is Heidi Strumman, Senior Vice President at Distinguished Programs. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. Heidi, let's start with you. People in the industry are making a living on developing new ideas. Who are they? Well, I would argue that it's everyone, right? We, we all need to be involved in developing new ideas in order to meet the needs of our clients and, and to add value. And by all of us, I do mean everyone in the insurance supply chain, starting with retail brokers, who often are closest to the policyholder, right up through insurance carriers and reinsurers. It's a diverse group of individuals, um, diverse in terms of knowledge, skill sets, areas of expertise. Uh, that's what's really needed to effectively engage in the process of identifying emerging risks. My own career experience is primarily as a program administrator in the hospitality space. And some of the best insights about industry-specific emerging risks come from engaging with our end buyers. Namely, for me, it's the people that are running restaurants and hotels. They're the folks who are most in touch with emerging trends in their own specific industry, but they may be less aware of the potential risk posed by those trends. And that's where we collectively, as an industry, can really help by deploying the resources available to us, ultimately to better define, measure, and, and hopefully mitigate that risk. So it's a group project. I just think of it as a group project. And uh, whether you like group projects or not, we're stuck with this one. And uh, we need to work collaboratively, really, to be successful. Hank, would you agree that it's a group project? Who are these people? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd agree with what Heidi just said. I'd also add that as we get further along this, this um, chain of more and more challenging events that face the world, governments will have to become more involved with the private sector to better understand what our needs are and, and be more uh, more efficient in how they deploy capital to, to meet them. Um, I also want to add that risk managers of you know, the top uh, companies in the world are very, very important elements of this risk identification, mitigation, and transfer process. They're not always buying insurance. They're oftentimes self-assuming their risk. But that involves a wide variety of, of players as well, including brokers, uh, carriers, risk managers, um, uh, insurers, et cetera, and capital providers that aren't normally in this industry. Yeah, I think about the insurance industry is uh, very much being a derived industry. Derived meaning that uh, our relevance is derived from the liability landscape that our customers face. And I'd argue that changes in that um, liability landscape are accelerating in terms of business models, new industries, 
And I think really, if you think about Lloyd's, you think about the excess and surplus lines industry broadly here in the United States, I think that sector is the best equipped with its freedom of rate and form to respond to these changes that seemingly are uh, confronting our clients in real time. What distinguishes the good ideas from the bad ideas? Hank, would you like to start with that? Well, uh, taking off from what Matt talked about, uh, in our side of the, the industry, uh, there probably are no bad ideas. Uh, we wanna hear everything from, from uh, our distribution partners, wanna understand what their clients are, are, are needing. Uh, and perhaps as we develop solutions, uh, you, you take cryptocurrency, for example, there aren't many people who understand that. Um, there are some MGAs out there now who have capital attached to them who are actually educating brokers on, on the opportunities they have available for their clients who are uh, entering or have entered the crypto space. So uh, that's just an example. How in the ENS sector, as Matt mentioned, uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time um, going through the policy or, or rate um, um, a filing uh, process, if you will, and that enables us to move very quickly when these types of exposures come up uh, and to solve problems that normally would take the standard market a lot longer to do, or they wouldn't want to do it all. Over the course of my career, I've seen a number of uh, well-intentioned, really good ideas that have been brought to market in terms of product or approach, but ultimately weren't um, commercialized because there's got to be some level of acceptance and a willingness to, 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 to purchase the coverage. And that's something that, uh, that, that underwriters need to think about as they invest time and capital in, uh, in launching new products. The other observation that I would offer is that most new products in the early um, uh, days of development and launch, the take-up rate is often very, very low. And if they think historically about areas like EPLI, uh, DNO, environmental insurance, you know, as those markets were made, uh, the take-up rate was was relatively disappointing. But over time, as market acceptance increases, new entrants come into the space. Um, it, it results typically in, in, in you know, pricing stabilization. It's, it's, a, it, it's like a traditional bell curve, if you think about it. So patience is an important element of uh, launching new product. Great points. I, I would agree. No bad ideas. It doesn't mean that every idea is going to translate into a marketable insurance product. But definitely hearing and sharing ideas in, in that, from that perspective, there's no bad idea because even if today it's not translatable, maybe it will be in the future. And just to add on to what Matt just said, I think that the acceptance rate uh, cannot only vary just by product over time, but also by industry segment. I have served the hospitality industry for many years and there was definitely a later adoption by a lot of restaurants for cyber, for example, because they didn't see a need for it, whereas some other industries saw a need for it earlier. Um, restaurants didn't see a need for it later and then acceptance has accelerated by COVID because restaurants have become more reliant on pushing out technology and they see the connection between the, you know, the increased use of technology and the need for cyber. So it's a process um, which, which can really extend over a long period of time, depending on the product and the industry. Is it the risk specialists who are researching the new risks or does it go beyond that? Maybe we can start with Matt. Well, I think it goes beyond it. I, I think that the process of innovation, um, I think there's a general misconception that the process sort of goes like this, that, that, that 
a client comes to you with a particular need, you as an underwriter solve that problem. Suddenly, we put a label on this new product and take it to market. I've very rarely seen um, innovation take place um, in that kind of uh, uh, format. More typically, you know, as the liability landscape changes and evolves, you know, in the early days, the change signals that are out there on the horizon are fairly faint. And so markets that are successful in launching new product are listening for those change signals, amplifying them and thinking about what's around the corner, not what's right up ahead, but what's around the corner. And some of the, 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 the companies that are really adept at uh, innovation um, and in Lloyd's, particularly, which has been a fountain of innovation for the industry for, for decades, has really evolved around people thinking about whether they're current affairs, evolving risk, how things are going to look into the future. And that, to me, is really the key in terms of developing product. And that is a very deliberate process. It's not a reactive process. It's a very proactive process. And, you know, organizations that, that, that focus on the development of new products and are listening for those change signals are the ones that really lead. I, I think that increasingly uh, insurance entities of various kinds have been more cognizant of the fact that they need to, to, to deploy my earlier comment, make this a group project. It's, it's across many disciplines that, that these uh, emerging risks are discussed, developed, identified, and kind of fleshed out. And it is not something that just happens in a, a lab with a few people. A plug for the MGA segment of our of our business. Um, they have capital to deploy. They have a time frame to do it in. They want to make money at it for their capital partners, capital provider partners, and they want to serve their customers, which are in most cases the retail agents and brokers that that they work with to distribute to the policyholder. Um, there are so many examples. Just during the pandemic, for example, um, most movie productions globally stopped because nobody as a provider to the industry of capital, the uh, movie industry, wanted to take on the risk of stars getting sick and prog uh, production being shut down. There was an enterprising MGA out in California who put together a COVID-19 buyback coverage that enabled CODA, for example, which won the Academy Award to be filmed. And, and that's an example, again, of, a, of a, an MGA, an intermediary, um, looking every single day at how they can affect change in, in um, to Matt's point, um, um, uh, situations that are around the corner and, and we may not even know about right now. So uh, it's a combination of everybody. Uh, I used to, I was a broker for many years and I thought, of course, it's the broker, the underwriters just sit there and wait for the submissions. That's not really true, but it felt good to feel that way because your clients believed it. But but uh, it, it's really the people with capital to deploy who have to do it within 12 months usually. Uh, those are the ones that, that working with the brokers and, of course, the more sophisticated buyers in the chain to come up with the real solutions. How is the demand for new coverage is being demonstrated and developed? Hank, can you uh, address this? I'd say it, it's, it's, um, it's being demonstrated every day again by, by the capital providers as well as the intermediaries that are looking for ways to enhance their business. Because you know, if there were no losses, I learned that early in my career as an underwriter, if there were no losses, we'd be doing something else. So uh, there always will be losses. And, and those of us in the ENS segment, again, are constantly looking uh, for those opportunities to, to uh, pair capital with risk in ways that, that the standard market may not be able to. Yeah, I think that being in touch with whatever, for, for those of us who specialize in a particular industry segment, I think staying in close touch with 
that segment and what is happening in your segment is one of the things that really drives this whole area. If, if we don't understand the industries that we serve, um, we are not going to be able to percolate ideas. You know, we, we, we can't really come up with those in some kind of vacuum of, of information about what is happening with the particular clients that we serve or want to serve. And I would just, you know, keep going back to that as, as one of the keys to being effective in this area. Yeah, I agree with Heidi. And I'd say also that, you know, when I think about innovation generally in, in, in our industry, I think about it in, in, in sort of two ways. First, that sort of bell curve that I described where, you know, early uh, adoption is slow, accelerates over time. But then there is also a kind of a reactive element, which I think both Lloyd's and the ENS industry here in the United States excel at. Case in point, um, COVID hits. We are in the travel business, um, ensuring trip cancellation. And, and certainly that business really dried up uh, for a period of time uh, post-COVID as cruise lines sort of you know, halted, et cetera. That team pivoted very quickly and developed a program with the government of the Bahamas because um, the Bahamas were concerned about uh, their ability to maintain a healthy tourism uh, trade. And they also recognized that they didn't have a healthcare system that could support a major COVID outbreak. And so we put together a program that was designed to place a tariff on anybody entering the country, um, you know, through their airline tickets. And essentially, if anyone can, uh, contracted COVID during their stay uh, on the island, uh, we would pay to have them medevaced back to the uh, treatment facility of their choice or pay to have them quarantined on the island if that was their choice. And uh, we processed over a million visitors under that program during the COVID time, period. And I think that's an example of how the excess and surplus lines uh, market can pivot quickly to respond to issues that admitted markets really, I think, are, are hamstrung in their ability to move quickly and launch product effectively. I've, I've got an example. Can I share an example as well that you're kind of reminding me of something? There, there's a company in Colorado that, that uh, started life as a manufacturer of, of sensors that go into cargo containers, especially those transporting sensitive uh, products like vaccines or seafood, et cetera, so that during the voyage, the owner of the cargo would be able to tell pretty quickly if there's a problem in that container, you know, the tipped over, if there's a fire, if there's smoke, the temperature's too hot, too cold. And so they don't have to wait till they get to the destination to make a claim. Uh, that transitioned into um, somebody who became a cover holder at Lloyd, able to, again, uh, work with a syndicate to provide not only the, the sensor technology, but the claim payment process uh, in real time, really, because it was a parametric trigger. And then ultimately, they became a syndicate at Lloyd. So that's an example. And that all took place within a year. So didn't have to go. Uh, and again, regulators have a ton of respect for them. And, and the ENS industry is regulated. We're not the Wild West, but we, we just uh, are, are given perhaps a different touch than the standard market. But uh, didn't have to go and, and file the policy forms, file the rates, and wait for somebody uh, to step in and say it's okay to do it. So uh, just another example. Thanks for that prompt, Matt. What kind of background and expertise do you need to have that creates or helps the industry develop new risk opportunities? It's a great question. You know, during my time at uh, AIG, I, I led an innovation effort. Um, originally, it was, a, you know, an innovation project at Lexington, but it, it ultimately flourished and, and it was a, a project that we took all over the world to bring groups of colleagues together 
in order to proactively think about change, develop recommendations for product and, and ultimately commercialize those products. And as that program progressed, we did it uh, about 20 times over about a three year period all over the world. One of the things that we learned was the more diverse the participants were, uh, the better the outcomes. So at the beginning, we focused largely on commercial underwriters to, as participants. By the end, we were bringing in people who had backgrounds as attorneys, marketing, just about any aspect of, uh, of the business that you could imagine. And that diversity of thought and that diversity in terms of thinking about emerging risk became a very, very powerful tool in our ability to um, launch and ultimately commercialize new product. I think that this also goes to um, the overall efforts of, of our industry and certainly others to diversify their um, staff and employee base in terms of their own personal backgrounds, because we all bring our personal experience to the table in these conversations. It's, it's our professional experience, but it's also our personal experience, where we come from, you know, how that's shaped us. And so I think diversity in every aspect, both in whatever discipline you have chosen to pursue in your professional career, but also um, from, from your own personal background, these are all uh, really key to being innovative. Yes, and now just that—that's the the reason our industry is so focused on getting even high school students now interested in what we do, uh, and certainly the universities that have RMI programs. There, there are over 75 in the country, I think. Last time I looked, but uh, again, we need to bring in a, a whole new perspective on how things are done, uh, or how people would like to have things done. Um, maybe reverse mentoring. Uh, we've all probably tried that. It works really well, and 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 I I, I love just getting ideas from people who are just starting out in the industry, uh, sometimes they're, they're pretty good ideas because they don't have a legacy experience to to cloud their, their minds and they just come at it uh, without any fear these days, especially. So you're right, it's diversity of backgrounds, not only in, in the life experience, but also just, just age. Can we specifically identify the risk opportunities, the new ones, the ones that are emerging, the ones that have emerged in recent years? Maybe we can go around the room here and maybe uh, you can give me some of your thoughts on what you think of some of those top emerging risks. How about we start with Hank? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, you know, I think we all look forward to the uh, the uh, World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report every year. It comes out January, February, and, and they typically identify a top 10. Uh, a lot of them recently have to do with climate change. And this was issued most recently before the Ukraine invasion. So geopolitical conflict was towards the bottom. I would argue that's probably one or two right now, uh, especially as, as other parts of the world are, are um, more in our vision uh, following Ukraine. But, but uh, you know, climate change uh, and, and perhaps the inability of, of mankind to adapt to it is, is always been a major concern. Uh, you mentioned uh, healthcare issues. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, Lloyd's issued a, a thought leadership report on, on what happens in the next pandemic. And I think it was the least downloaded of all of our thought leadership over the past 20 years. You know, no one thought about it. Um, look, what, look what happened, what, two or three years ago. So the, there's, there's so many of these risks. Now, cyber, interestingly, is not really in that top 10 list. I, I'm not sure because that's just an embedded risk now in everybody's mind, or perhaps uh, there's just so many other things that are impacting just about everybody all the time that cyber is, is perhaps I would never say taking a back seat, but at least from this top 10 list that the World Economic Forum puts out, it, it wasn't in there, surprisingly. But I mean, we could go on, and, and this, this conversation is strictly um, um, 
it, it appeals to us in the industry all day long. Uh, and it's we, we could probably each name a top 10 that uh, weren't named by the other. Heidi, what would be in your top 10? Well, I, I think that I would agree with um, Hank that you, you can juggle the list. There might be a few on there that some people would have that others weren't. But a lot of it comes down, in my mind, to how the items on that list are going to impact specific industries or, or specific clients that you're trying to serve. So take the pandemic, for example. Hit the hospitality industry hard and in particular ways that it, it didn't necessarily hit other industries. I think um, I'm, it's unclear how, how much restaurants or hotels had it on their radar, like that a pandemic might hit and shut them, literally shut them down, you know, for months. Some, some were probably more aware of that potential than others, but I would wager that most of them hadn't really thought that that could be an outcome from a pandemic. A part of that was because of the particular type of pandemic and how that COVID is spread. You know, the airborne um, spread clearly had an impact on any business that relied on people being together in person much more than it did on other businesses. So I, I do think that much of our analysis and thought process here is not just about what's on that list, but thinking through whatever is on that list or could be on that list, how it could impact specific industries and how we can mitigate the risk for specific industries. And I do believe that we um, in our business can really be helpful to the industries that we serve and our clients by thinking that way and trying to um, imagine with them, you know, what could be next and how we can address it from their perspective, how it would impact them. Heidi, in your industry, we, we saw a lot of changing and creation on the fly. I mean, with the open open air dining, I mean, we still see it nowadays. So it's it seems Absolutely. like it's an ongoing, everyday changing situation. So Yeah, I mean, yeah. most people as would acknowledge that as difficult and undeniably difficult as the pandemic has been for restaurants, for example, it also drove innovation. And there are restaurants that have actually emerged stronger because they developed multiple revenue streams, which they realized are helpful, not just during the pandemic, but in the long run. And it's, you know, despite everything, there are some good outcomes from it. Not that they would have chosen it to, to happen that way, but there can be positive outcomes. And Matt, what would be in your top 10? Listen, I think there are a number of individual risks that you could point to. Uh, I, I think more broadly, um, if you think about the seismic changes in, in, in our U.S. economy, I'm not talking about those sort of you know, fluctuation in interest rates or inflation. I'm talking about the underlying fabric of our economy. If you go back to uh, the early part of the last century, the leading industries, the top 10 companies um, in the United States were largely raw materials, steel, coal, oil, um, because we were in the midst of this, you know, industrialization. Um, we were an industrializing economy. You clock up to 2000, the lineup had changed dramatically. You see companies like Walmart and Citigroup. Uh, you see, you know, Exxon. You see large corporations that are reflective of what? 
a reflective of a wealth economy that had evolved you know, the, over, over that, that 100 year period. But people that sit around and think about what the future state of our economy looks like in terms of what's out there in 25 years, you start to hear about industries like robotics, photonics, uh, pharma, uh, biotech, all of these industries are, are evolving and with each and every one of them comes a changing and emerging liability landscape. And I think the challenge for our industry is that the vast majority of insurers today are very well equipped to handle the risks associated with those old economy business models. Very few have the requisite product and talent to understand emerging risk. And this, again, is, 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 is the great benefit that Lloyd's and the U.S. ENS market bring to bear on emerging risk. And so, again, it's this notion of change signals being faint in the early days. You've got to be thinking about this, this future state economy because it is coming fast and furious. And, you know, businesses, uh, models are developed and extinguished in a, in, in a relatively finite period of time today. Um, they're disintermediated by new technologies and new models. This didn't happen 100 years ago. Um, but this, this pace of change requires that we innovate at the pace of change. And I think that's really what... Um, is, 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 is the beauty of ENS. I, 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 just hearing Heidi and, and Matt talk, it just reminded me of, of Uber and, and, and uh, you know, a lot of these companies that, that pivoted during the pandemic to change what they did for a living. Uh, if you look at the sharing economy, the gig economy, go back okay. five or six years ago, there were only so many people who would get in a stranger's car, uh, who would rent a stranger's home or rent their home to a stranger until insurance got involved. Uh, there were some pretty enterprising brokers and underwriters who said this is a, a, a an economic segment that's going to be massive someday but without risk transfer without mitigation and transfer not enough people out there who are potential customers are going to want to do it so lo and behold our industry got together um, brokers with with carriers there are lots of products now in the ens sector in particular uh, that help any one of these sharing economy companies whether it's scooters you know with a personal mobility economy uh, name, name, you know, the car sharing, uh, house sharing, et cetera, they all have insurance available to their users now. And I think that just really drove a, a, another booming sector of our economy. And that's sort of a plug for the insurance industry too, because absent our involvement, where would those guys be? Deloitte said that insurers should consider adopting strategic risk management as a holistic framework to not only help them manage the, the potential downside of disruptive risks, but also perhaps achieve faster growth by better preparing them to capitalize on the resulting opportunities. Matt, would you agree with this? I think, again, it goes back to this notion of it being, you know, innovation being a deliberate process on the part of uh, uh, the underwriting community. Um, it's not a part-time job. Uh, we all contribute to it, as Hank and, and, and Heidi have, have alluded, but to have a very deliberate process in place, incubators in place, um, I think is, uh, it, there's not enough of it, um, but where you see it done well, um, it's, uh, it, it leads to a lot of success in development of new approaches and, and, and changes to our industry. So I, I, I agree with the, uh, the Deloitte analysis that the you know, approach has to be deliberate and you have to have dedicated resources that are constantly you know, thinking about you know, the evolution of business models uh, for our clients, as well as some of the you know, um, individual risk factors that we talk about, whether it is climate change, whether it's uh, geopolitical risk, in uh, so many others, um, it's it's important that, that that people are very focused on change because we're in the change business and we need to 
create that requisite product that our clients are going to need tomorrow. And so this is, a, I think, a great observation on, on the part of the, the Deloitte team. The, the dedicated resources is the key here. I believe that it's it's probably a, a bit of an internal battle at a lot of organizations for budgeting for those resources and at, you know having it make sense and making the case uh, within that organization that it's going to pay off and is a smart um, deployment uh, of those resources. But from what I see, increasingly those people that are arguing for the dedication of those resources are winning. I'm with the various partners that, that we have, insurance carriers, you know, TPAs and, and other organizations uh, that are part of our industry. I do see more and more emphasis, focus and dedication to this process and the resources are being, you know, put, put there to support it. Yeah, I'll just share an example of what's been going on in the Lloyd's market. You know, we've been around for over 325 years, so there, there's been a lot of impetus uh, initially by people sitting on an island uh, to to not only wait for risk to come to them, but to go out and get it. And that's how our MGA cover holder business arose over the years. But we have a group of, of syndicate underwriters uh, who work with us in the corporation on this horizon scanning process and essentially that's all they do in their free time is, is look around the world, look at all the different types of risks that come into the Lloyd's market, and then try to anticipate a couple of years from now, how, how might this risk I just wrote uh, evolve into something I may not be comfortable with. So I've got to find a solution for that too, because I don't want to lose it. Uh, but there's, you, you get, I guess the collective power of Lloyd's is that you have hundreds uh, and hundreds of people every day looking at risk as underwriters, hundreds more as brokers. And so the, I, I I would not hesitate to say they've seen just about everything. And so you aggregate that all in one place right there in EC3, and that gives us the opportunity to um, hopefully not miss too much. Uh, we all make mistakes, of course, but there, there's probably a great opportunity within that marketplace to to see what's out there. And I'm not trying to, for this to be a commercial for Lloyd's because most of the U.S. insurance companies we compete with in the, uh, on, on the ground here also own syndicates at Lloyd's. So we're all sort of in this partnership to find solutions for the people who need it most. Deloitte actually got a little more specific. Some of their suggestions they suggested, you know, including mapping the implications of uh, strategic risks with the company's risk appetite, leveraging risks, sensing tools to generate early warning sides for merging risk, strategic risks. Uh, what do you think of those, some of those ideas? We could start with Matt again. Yeah, I mean, I think you, there, there, there's, there's so much uh, evolving technology in, in terms of sensors, for, as an example, because it's a really good example, whether it's uh, uh, temperature uh, uh, gauges, uh, that can prevent uh, or notify, provide an early warning system uh, in an instance where you know pipes are freezing or HVAC has been impaired. Things that will lead to a loss can suddenly be mitigated. The ability to shut off water systems um, in you know in order to prevent flood. I, I think that we've seen sensor technology uh, built into the vests of construction workers in order to uh, provide early warning systems that you know would would alert them if they're becoming too close to uh, um, heavy machinery, but it could also provide a site manager with, you know, real-time input as to whether someone is lifting correctly or incorrectly, and the ability then to, you know, uh, provide coaching and eliminate a loss uh, potentially from uh, from taking place. So much technology, harnessing it, and then again, 
you know, creating an environment where um, customers are going to be willing to make the investment or carriers are going to be willing to make the investment uh, in order to uh, reduce the loss because there's, there's got to be that trade-off between the additional expense and, you know, impact to, uh, to loss costs. But I think that uh, increasingly there are so many tools at our disposal to, you know, improve risk outcomes that uh, you know, so the, the smart carriers are very, very, very focused on this. The, the whole area of the sensors is, is interesting because it goes across so many industries and certainly, you know, back to the industries that I serve. I mean, restaurants in recent years have deployed sensors, um, particularly in refrigeration systems to help reduce the potential for food spoilage, food contamination, you know, improper um, refrigeration temperatures is just one more way that that technology is being deployed. But I think that it's it's really interesting to me too to see how quickly the modeling tools have evolved. Um, you know, what used to be mostly a tool used maybe for wind and, you know, then flood, and now we see the modeling for wildfires, which is extensively used throughout the industry. And it wasn't that long ago that that really wasn't a thing. Um, and now I think anybody who's in the property insurance business is is using the the modeling tools that are available to, to model wildfire um, exposure and risk. So it changes quickly. And I think anybody who is um, not trying to stay ahead of that curve is, is going to get left behind. I, I would say the quid pro quo for any participant in our industry is to not only um, provide coverage in the event of a loss, but as importantly, uh, be there to help prevent losses in the first place. Because again, as an industry, we see just about everything. We're, we're gonna know more than most people we're insuring know about their business, uh, absent a few types of financial guarantees that have been out there in the past. But by and large, we have a real powerful opportunity to improve our image by, by helping uh, people really understand how we can help them. Because uh, the last place you wanna be is obviously at the other end of a claim, because that means clearly something didn't go right for you. So, you know, we can talk about telematics and all that, but I think uh, we're all pretty familiar with that. If you have teenage drivers and you you bid into that, you bought into that, and all of a sudden your, your premium goes up, uh, then maybe telematics wasn't for you, but uh, it's personal experience. But uh, so I learned about it. It's good stuff. It's a two-edged sword. I mean. Yes. <laughs> so before we conclude, uh, let's ask each of the panelists if they have any final thoughts. How about we start with Hank? Well, Tom, again, I appreciate what you and AM Best have given us today, this opportunity to to talk about our industry broadly. Uh, but uh, for Heidi, Matt, and myself, being in the ENS sector, which we uh, probably have been in most of our lives, either placing business within it or actually helping capital attach to the risk, uh, there, there's, uh, there's no better place. I, I tell everyone who listened to me that's even considering this industry that, that you can come into the ENS sector and, and with your personal passion for whatever it might be, find a home as an underwriter, as a broker, as a claims adjuster, you name it, and you can find a place to live out your your, your personal dreams uh, while also uh, joining a really great industry. So thanks for the opportunity to, to share that. Matt, any final thoughts? Listen, I think, uh, you know, picking up on a, on, a, on a comment that Heidi made earlier, it really is be about being a student uh, of the industry that you serve. So if, whether you're a construction underwriter, a healthcare underwriter, a cyber underwriter, being a student of, of all of the change that surrounds your customers, I think is absolutely uh, mission critical. Uh, as well, I think just being naturally curious. 
uh, is really something that helps sow the, sows the seeds of, uh, of innovation. Uh, we can all be naturally curious individuals and think about how changes, whether they're geopolitical risks or the uh, pandemic risks that we talk about so much. But, you know, all of these sort of risk categories that, that are often highlighted in these industry reports, imagining how those changes will ultimately impact the customer and making the requisite uh, products available for that future state, I think is a, really one of the most exciting things about the industry. Heidi, any th final thoughts? I think that this whole area of emerging risk is our insurance equivalent of the summer blockbuster. You know, we, it's, you can, it's, it's an area where we need to excel for one thing to be successful, but it's also an area where as we look at um, the need to bring new folks into our industry and recruit talent, hey, it's exciting. I mean, it's an area where you can imagine kind of different scenarios. You can, you can turn it into a virtual, you know, a video game of some kind if you want, just to think about how different scenarios can play out. I think it is an aspect of our industry that has huge potential in terms of, um, again, our success or failure for that, for that matter, but it, it will be one of the key um, areas where we all need to focus and where we can really engage more people from more different um, backgrounds and areas of expertise to really join us in, as Hank said, it's something that is really a great industry and, and offers a lot of potential for a lot of different people. Hank, Matt, and Heidi, thank you for being on this panel. For AMBEST, I'm Tom Davis. Looking to get the full attention of the insurance industry? We have the platforms that will do just that. Whether it be AM Best TV, AM Best Audio, Best Review Magazine, or Best Day. Find out more by calling AM Best Advertising Sales at 908-439-2200, extension 5399, and have a great day.